0: So one thing I do a lot when I record this shit is I is I pick my arms up like this and do you see how f- sweaty I am? Jesus Christ, I I don't even I, you know it's interesting because I literally only sweat out of my armpits. Look at that. Look at that sweat. Is that disgusting? That might be. That might be like something you're not supposed to do in the intro of a podcast. But guess what? It's reality. Nature. Sweaty armpits. I don't get sweaty feet. I don't get sweaty hands. I don't get sweaty arms, legs, neck, hair, I just get sweaty armpits. I don't get it. And I don't get them. I don't get sweaty armpits when I do physical like I could ride 20 miles on my bike, not a not a droplet. Not a droplet. Okay? But I could survive in the Sahara. I was born for the Sahara. Okay? Put me on the Sahara. What are you going to give me? No clothes, doesn't matter. You're going to give me an umbrella and a, and a ski mask. Doesn't matter. Okay? Like I'm robbing someone in the rain? I don't give a fuck. I'm gonna survive. Give me whatever you wanna give me. Don't give me shit. Cause I'm not gonna sweat anything. I drink a gallon of water. I'm good for six months. I'm like a crocodile. Okay? But these armpits, these armpits ground me. They bring me back to reality because these armpits. sweating. Sweating. You know? And I'll even say that with my Pennsylvania accent because they're sweating you know, do this one guy I know, he says, he says, chimney, instead of chimney, he replaces the N with an L, he says, chimley. he says, hey, could you go up there and fix the chimney, he says, chimney, it's not even like he pronounces it wrong. You can't, you can't even say that he, you can't even yell at him for pronouncing it wrong. He just doesn't say the right word, right? It's different when someone pronounces it. It's like water. When these dummies around here say water. Can I get a glass of water? No, you can't. Cause now you're gonna die of thirst because you can't pronounce goddamn words right. So go die. Cause I'm not giving you any water. But it's like chimley. You can't, Chimley, it's not even a word, it's just a made-up word, and everyone just lets it go because he's old. Old people could say whatever the fuck they want to say. That's why they're all racist, because they get away with it. You know, if you're over 90, you're just allowed to be racist. And that's not a rule I made, that's just how it is. If you're over 90, you're racist at the grocery store. And it's okay. No one even complains about it. You're law, you're gone, ga- you're gonna die in a year, and everyone just lets you have it. Just like when you're old and you say chimney Take it. It doesn't even matter. You know? It's fine. If you pronounce the complete wrong word, you say chimley instead of chimney. Whatever. But at the same time, I hate you. You know? Don't say chimley or roof. Don't say roof. Ru- you're not a dog. You're talking about the thing that goes over a house. You know? So don't bark. Instead, say Roof, you know. Don't say roof. Don't say water. 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 Can I get a water? And you know who says it like that? People from Philadelphia. God, if there's one city, and listen, I'm not saying I want anyone in Philadelphia to die, but I will say this: if I had to pick one major metropolitan area that got hit with a meteorite, I would, with regrets, with re- listen, I wouldn't. I would sleep easy at night. I would still sleep easy, but. I would choose philadelphia it would keep me up for a a day or two a day or two but then i would sleep okay after that i would choose philadelphia it's just how it is you know i would choose philadelphia is it because they say water no is it because they absolutely suck yes one time i recorded a podcast with daryl treffert do you remember him episode three and in the intro to that i said i said this i said I saw people flying into Philadelphia from a different part of the world and they ripped up their passports so that they would get deported because Philadelphia is so gross. I said that, it was a joke, still a joke, never saw that happen because I've never been in the Philadelphia airport because I don't trust this vagrants, but I said that and we're in such a sensitive culture today and people can't take a fucking joke that he literally wanted me to take down the episode and he refused to advertise because i said that about philadelphia unbelievable and i don't think i've maybe i talked about that on here before but that shit breaks my balls jesus christ get it it, i'm gonna flip out because it like boggles my mind that people can be that way i don't like you talking about philadelphia because people might think that then i don't like philadelphia and i don't want people to think i don't like philadelphia because what if i get canceled for not liking philadelphia what if they kick me off Twitter? Fuck you. You know? And that's not pointed towards Daryl Treffer. He's a great guy and I'm glad he was on the podcast. But just that culture in general. That culture of like being afraid of saying shit. It blows my mind. And when I first started doing this, I was like afraid of, you know, showing some emotion or or cursing or being myself in any way. And that is 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 horrible and then i had that experience very early on with my first big guest like big big guest with a big outreach and then that solidified that idea in my head that like oh my god the culture in this world is super pc but that's not true because outside of the bubble of academia people don't give a shit that's what was so nice about having dr ray weiss on because he's such a, a a real human He's a Nobel laureate. He's a real human. He would sit here and bullshit with me. He was receptive to jokes. He was funny. He was talking shit on Donald Trump. And Dr. David Warmflash, who today's guest, is very much the same way. The way he jokes and the way he's not afraid of this weird fucking weird culture that I can't even like put my finger on. It's like I'm afraid. I I was. I don't care anymore. But, like, I was afraid of, like, saying the wrong thing or or upsetting the wrong person. And guess what? It didn't work out. It's stupid. It's disingenuous. And people don't care about you when you do that. They don't want to listen to you. It's boring. Do you know what isn't boring? Being yourself. Because, guess what? There's 7.7 7 million billion people on this planet. And guess what? Every single one of them is different. And that is what is... is what is is monetizable on the internet it isn't being the same motherfucker it is the uniqueness that accompanies each human being that's what the internet's all about it's not about you know being the same person and putting out content with the same people that's not the goal the goal is to give unique perspectives so that other people watching can utilize their unique perspective to look at your unique perspective and then you get to do something that, in the history of human civilization, we've never got to do before, which is connect. Connect with different people, with different viewpoints, with different ideologies, with different perspectives, with all of it. And if you're just trying to be the same person that you see someone else being, then you're not doing that. And because you're not doing that, you won't be successful at doing this. And I realized that. And it wasn't, like, quickly that I realized that. I did a ton of shows before that sunk into me, but that's not the point. What's up? This is the State of the Universe. My name is Brendan. Welcome to the show. And look what I got here. The moon. What is this book good for? It's hard as a rock, so if you want to hit someone in the face with it, that's an option. If you want to learn about the early history of the moon, that's an option. Do you want to know about the moon formed? It's in the book. Do you want to know about what the ancient Greeks used the moon for? It's in the book. Do you want to know how you can deduce that the earth is curved for all you dummies out there? Oh, you believe the earth isn't curved? Dumb. You know? Oh, you believe the earth is flat? Guess what you are? Dumb. Okay? Read this book to find out how. How we know from just very basic principles. Back in the the days of the ancient Greeks that the earth is indeed round. You dummies. You bunch of dumb fucks. You dumb dumbs. You you're, almost said a word I shouldn't have said, but I caught myself. I would have got canceled. They would have canceled me. Okay. And that's a term that means essentially nothing. Actually, it just means you get kicked off Twitter. And do I want to be kicked off Twitter? Probably because it sucks. Twitter is by far the worst social media platform. But that's not the point. The point is, do you want to learn about the Apollo missions? It's in the book. We're coming up on the 50th anniversary of the Apollo missions. The 50th anniversary of putting men on the moon for the first time. 50 years. And we haven't been back. What are we doing? It's so crazy. It's so fucking nuts. Imagine if you told someone in 1969 that we'll go to the moon for another three years, but then we're going to be done for 50. What? It doesn't even like make logical sense. But anyway... It's all covered in this book by my guest today, Dr. David Warmflash. Okay, so check out the book. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It's available on the Kindle. It's available everywhere. Go get it. Go buy it. It's a wonderful... It truly is. An, it. I wouldn't recommend it if I didn't agree. It's a great book that it summarizes the information. It looks dense, right? Look at that. You're like, holy shit, that's a textbook. No, it's not. What it does is it breaks down 100 moments. In the history of our relationship with the moon. Human's relationship with the moon. Whether that be learning things from it in the ancient Greek times. Whether that be it contributing to the formation of the earth. It's all in here. And it's a 100 moments. And each moment only takes up one page. So you could literally sit down after dinner and learn two facts. Fun facts. Let me tell you one fun fact I actually learned. And it's cool. It's actually awesome. I'm going to put this book right on my lap. It's going to be on my lap. Here's a fun fact I learned. The U.S. was so eager to get to the moon first and win the space race that they literally considered taking a person. They didn't yet have the technology to land on the moon and then get back off the moon and bring the person safely home. They literally had considered, it's serious considerations too, sending a person to the moon to land on the moon with a bunch of supplies and to live there until we devise the technology to get them home. Who the fuck would have signed up for that? Jesus Christ. We need to have programs like that today so we can root out all the idiots in the universe. Who's signing up to go to the moon for five years and then trust that NASA figures your shit out in five years? Imagine you're stuck up there with no food. Like when you eat your last peanut butter sandwich. Oh my god. And you're just looking back at the planet and you see the earth and no one's coming to get you. That's scary shit. But you might be wondering who is Dr. David Wormflash besides the author of this incredible book. He is an astrobiologist. He is a medical doctor, a med doctor. And I actually didn't know that when I taught somehow that escaped me. Like I read it in all of his bios, but somehow like it didn't occur to me. It didn't occur to me, but he's an he was he was in the first flock of astrobiologists in the NASA doc, postdoc program, postdoctoral program. He was one of the inaugural astrobiologists in that prestigious group. He has been doing astrobiology and medicine for a very long time. He is an expert on many of these topics, and we talk about some of these topics. Okay, he's written for Scientific American, Discovery, all, all the big ones. He's written articles and he's still, and some of his articles are actually really good. I read an article he wrote about something. This, I encountered him by accident. I encountered his article by accident. And it was an article about helium-3 on the moon and what we could use it for. Because I wasn't familiar with it, but I was curious about it. And I accidentally read something that he wrote. And that's a good article too. So it was good to sit down and talk to him. We talked about the formation of the moon. We talked about how the ancient Greeks used the moon. He seemed to be really interested in how the ancient Greeks used the moon. Which is something that, going into the interview, I didn't really care about much. But after listening to him, all of a sudden I start to get interested in it. Because I, you know, people who follow the show, they know that, you know what I am? Number one thing I am, number one trait I have? Stupidity. Dumb. And because I'm dumb, I actually, the one thing, I joke about how stupid I am, but literally the one thing that i am not well versed in is history the one thing that i'm not well versed in is history and we and i've talked about why before but in seventh eighth ninth tenth grade school could fuck off you know so i didn't learn a lot of history in those years and i think that's sort of the years where you get that information about history and so i don't have a lot of that and so because of that i'm not really interested and i don't really care but he made me care then we talk about the apollo programs we talk about going back to the moon we're going back soon. We have to go back soon. Within the next 10 years, we will have men on the moon. That's my prediction. Or women. Women too. I'm not just saying men. For all you Muppets out there who wanna, you know, who are tweeting me right now. Women too. So I hope that you enjoy the episode. I am giving this book away. If you want a copy of this book right here, The Moon, click the link down below in the description to see how you could win it. You have to do one of a few things so you have an opportunity to win this book. You don't have to sign up for anything. You don't have to enter your email and name in for any bullshit. I'm not going to sell your information, but I will require a few things from you. So click the link down below if you want to win the book, and I'll send it to you. So with that being said, thanks for tuning in. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter. Support the Patreon, patreon.com slash the state of the universe, all one word. Go to my website at thestateoftheuniverse.com, all one word, or support the PayPal at paypal.me slash drackler. And will you be able to spell that? No. So go to my website. And with that being said, I'll see you guys later this week with a second episode. Bye-bye. Dr. David Warmflash, your name, first off, you have maybe the coolest name out of anyone I've had on here. Maybe the coolest. I was talking to my mother last night, and I, you know, she she always asks me who I'm interviewing. She might be my biggest fan, which I don't. I'm not yet convinced if that's a good or a bad thing. But, um, she always asked me, and I said Dr. David Wormflash. And now I play a lot of jokes with my mom. Okay, I mess with her all the time. She literally did not believe me. She thought I was making up a name. So you have you have a name that's so good, so unique that people even think it's fake. And honestly, thank
1: you. I got it. I got the same thing from the British Interplanetary Society. They loved it.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a wonder. You know, you were destined to to work in this field, I suppose. Doctor yeah. David Warmflash.
1: Well, so some some people tell me I should have gone into gynecology with a name like that.
0: Yeah, but, I mean, uh, yeah, it's there's a lot of suitable places, right? Doctor, yeah, yeah, I could see, but I don't know, man. I don't know if I'm because honestly, like when I when I first heard your name. For some reason, honestly, and it's nothing against you, but like, for some reason, what immediately came to my mind was like, is this guy real? Is this guy like a quack? Is he like trying to share some crazy, uh, theories about how the universe is made of, you know, electric, electric plasma? Or is he trying to sell me on some gyroscope that goes faster than the speed of light? Like, I, that's honestly the first thing. Now, of course, I researched, you know, like, oh, Dr. David Wormflash, perfectly normal dude. But that's my brain. So maybe if you, you were- You probably
1: found out that there are three of us also. There's, there's, uh, there's an older David Warmflash and a younger David Warmflash. I'm the middle, Uh-huh. and uh, the older one is uh, he's the he's in entertainment law in New York City, and he handled the John Lennon account, so he knows Yoko Ono. He knows all these cool people.
0: Oh, really? Well, I I, pro- I know some
1: cool people. I think he beats me on that.
0: Mm, well, I probably sent him a Skype message earlier today because yeah. I was I was um, sending Skype messages to all the David Warmflashes, so. Yeah, oh, cool. what's up, David Warmflash? You yeah, must if you're be there really listening. confused. Yeah. Yes.
1: They okay. know I got some cousin. You know, um, I'm hoping I can outdo him though, maybe because I I, I want to meet Brian May since he's in our area
0: now. Of of, of, of course, yeah. you
1: know he's he's an astrophysicist. Yep. And it would be really cool to have uh, have him just give a wave. He's got a book out about the moon also, mm. so in, kind of in the same club,
0: but. Yeah. That would be cool. That'd be cool to link up with. Him. I haven't done. <laughs> yeah, so so yeah, you mentioned a book. We should probably mention the book. Uh you wrote a book. It's it's released today, I think. The day we're recording this or tomorrow rather, right? Uh, yesterday Yesterday. Yeah. It, I get the book tomorrow. Yes, cuz I pre-ordered it. People will
1: be watching the, the interview next week anyway.
0: Correct. But
1: based on what you just told me as we were getting ready, that it'll come out Tuesday, is that right? That's correct the 14th
0: mm-hmm.
1: and based on what my publisher just told me i believe that that is the day when the book will go on the display table in barnes and noble those tables that they have where they yep. hold a book and stand it up so mm-hmm. you'll notice it easier that way you have the science table or the space table whatever they have
0: yes and the, and the book is called for the people wondering it's called moon in illustrated history and you, you won't be able to miss it it's a beautifully designed cover i think and I honestly did not know, like, the extent to which bookstores... You, you mentioned, like, the display table, right? <laughs> until I moved to a city, because I went to college in rural Pennsylvania, until I moved to Rochester, New York, and there's a city, and there's these huge Barnes & Noble stores. Like, I didn't even know people still bought books in paper, and especially bought them at a store. I mean, you walk in and there's... You cannot miss these books, right? They are yeah. right in 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 side the front door. So I encourage anyone listening to go, to go pick it up, but we should talk a little bit about it. How long have you been writing this book?
1: Well, I, could I just say that, well, the well, reason why you might want to buy this book as a physical item in a store is because the illustrations are a big part of it. In exactly. Fact, the way the book was commissioned, the idea is part of a series called the Illustrated History Series, and there are a hundred mini stories in it, and every story has a full page picture either a famous piece of art or some kind of diagram or something like that so it's not something you just want to hear on audio or something you just want to hear a podcast talking about the book talking about topics in the book i'll tell you a few things in the book i won't give away the whole thing but i think you'll enjoy the pictures in there
0: yeah that's one thing i noticed as i was looking through it i was looking through it and i love i don't know whose idea this was i don't know if this was your idea i don't know if it's the publisher's but it's A hundred pages where you, you cover a topic, you cover it concisely, you cover it quickly, you cover it and you have a, a beautiful picture on one side and you have meaningful text on the other side. It is so accessible to read. That's one thing that stuck out to me. It's like, man, I could read like a page before dinner when I get home if I want to just read a couple pages. And it's not like a novel where you have to finish chapters. Right, you can. This thing's so accessible that you can just chunk it up throughout your entire day. And honestly, you could just read it in a singular day, right? If you were really devoted and really, you know, utilizing your time wisely. And it, it yeah.
1: The the publisher Sterling Press, the way they talk about these little stories, they call them moments,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and it's a hundred moments in the history of the moon, starting with the the beginning of the moon, 4.51 billion years ago when the moon formed. Based on what we think, and going all the way up to the present time and a little bit into the future. I took it about 25 years into the future, so we get to the 75th anniversary of, uh, of Apollo 11.
0: Yeah, so how long have you been writing it?
1: Oh, uh, it took about a little more than a year on and off, maybe approaching a year and a half. And I was just informed that uh, by the publisher wrote me, Hey, we got really good news. Told me there's a company in in Taipei and that they they have a contract with them to translate the book into Chinese and I was all excited. And then they said, so it'll take about eighteen months for them to translate it. And I thought, wow, it took me less time to write the book.
0: Wow. Yeah. Exactly what is your like what, what is your writing technique? Do you sit down every day? Do you do you try to hammer out a, a, a section a week? What what's the what's the idea?
1: I tried to do it little by little uh, until I got to a point where we really had to jump right into it and uh-huh. get it done for the deadline. So it was different styles. It was doing little by little, and then there were periods where uh, I was bingeing, binge writing on it. Um, the way the book came about was that I had this idea for a totally different book on a biomedical topic touching on space travel but also dealing with um, technology on Earth into the future. And my agent, Regina Brooks, of Serendipity Literary Agency, was pitching this idea, but before she was able to get any deal on that, they needed a, a company, Sterling Press, needed someone to write a book about the moon. I didn't know it would be about that. My agent emailed me and said, they need an astronomer to write, a book about astronomy. Can you write about astronomy? And I'm an astrobiologist. And I thought, well, uh, what kind of astronomy? Are you talking the kind that you do?
2: Uh-huh.
1: Are you talking some kind of intergalactic X-ray astronomy? I probably am not qualified to do that. And she told me, no, it's about the moon. And I thought, oh, great. So it's planetary science. That's right up my alley. That's part of astrobiology. There's enough planetary science in astrobiology. So it's a lot of geology in there. And there's a lot about the structure of the moon, about the of the moon. So I decided to do it. And then they told me the format that it's part of a series called the Illustrated History Series. And they had done other types of books in this series, uh, different topics. They have a math book where they go through history of math. They've got uh, some other books. A uh, computer book, I think, just came out. And they have a weather book that came out. Uh, about a year ago, which is the book that they sent me to get an idea about the format.
0: hmm I see. So e- one of the things I noticed is like, so you have these hundred moments, as you call them, and each moment is is dense. Not every one of them is dense as as every other, but some of them can be particularly dense in terms of the amount of material. Now it's conveyed in a, in a perfect way, right? It's not hard to read by, by any means. But how long... Did it take you to actually read supplemental material when you wrote one of these moments? Right? Did, were you digging through papers? Were you reading other books? Yeah,
1: it's hard, so hard to say because I just—I'll just read in my spare time. I will listen to manuscripts, mm-hmm. so I'll get a peer review paper and I'll put audio on that because for that the pictures count right. as they do for look at this book. So. It was a lot. There's a lot of, you'd spend a lot more time when you're writing a book like this, much more time doing the research.
2: Right, exactly. Writing
1: it, although I did spend a lot of time on writing because I did a lot of uh, revising. And we had a maximum, a cutoff limit of 350 words for each moment. But a good chunk of those moments started out probably as a thousand words. And then I had to cut it down and say, well, I can't talk about this, this,
0: this, or this. Yeah, that 350. I mean, it really does. It makes it incredibly accessible. But yeah. it, that's got to be But tough, it gives me a right? whole
1: bunch of topics that I can, I can use as material to rewrite and expand upon. Mm-hmm. For, so if there are any magazine editors and publishers listening, I've got a wealth of material. And just contact me. and Brandon will tell you how to contact me.
0: Yep. The, we'll put some contact information down below. Um, but yeah. when, you, when you write these, do you feel... I almost feel like this, and I hadn't realized this until I read your, your book, or at least a bulk of it. Um, do you feel like this is where we might see literature move in the future is, is short snippets? Because, you know, we live in such a fast paced society and, and the more yeah. fast paced things get, the more things like audiobooks emerge and the more things like podcasts emerge. And I wonder if, you know, this form of long form reading, the 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 age of the novel. I don't want to say it's dead because it's certainly not dead, but I would at least say it's in decline. And do you think that that you know the way that you wrote this book is is maybe more representative of where writing will go in general?
1: I'm not sure. I, I'm not an expert on the trends in literature. No one is. Things are going. Yeah, maybe nobody knows. I should say though that for the illustrated history series at Sterling Press, although these are. A 100 separate little stories much more than other books in the series that i've seen uh i've linked together groups of of moments Uh so that i have stories running throughout the book so for example if you look in the, the parts going through ancient history i have a couple of protagonists that pop up in multiple moments and i go back and i refer to different moments Aristarchus of Samos is one of them. He's a hero mm-hmm. of, say, the first third of my book. He was a really important astronomer in, in ancient times. I'm sure your listeners probably mostly all know about him, so I don't have to give too much information on him the way I work for other audiences. But he was essentially, he's the first person we know about to figure out that the Earth goes around the sun and all the planets go around the sun rather than the earth being stationary as aristotle had insisted a century before aristarchus mm-hmm. aristarchus is in the roughly the third century bce and aristotle's in the fourth century bce 100 years earlier aristotle was very convinced that earth was stationary um, the reason is not not because he thought that humans are more, most important in the cosmos that's a a myth that you hear sometimes that people think, oh, for from the time of Aristotle all through until uh, Copernicus and Kepler and Galileo, humans were just so smug. They thought they were the center of everything, and they just couldn't fathom the idea that Earth was moving. But there was a reason why Aristotle and then Claudius Ptolemy, who came up with a mathematical system based on Aristotle's idea, was that they didn't have any evidence of stellar parallax, Mm -hmm. which is Earth, if it's moving around the sun, then the angle from which you can see stars and constellations is going to change throughout the course of the year, just as if you cover one eye with your hand like this and look at something close and then move your hand to the other side, you'll see the object shift. And you should see something shift from... January to July, if Earth is moving around the Sun. Mm -hmm. And Aristotle reasoned that, well, we don't see any stellar parallax. And the only reason why, if there were stellar parallax and we're not seeing it, the stars would have to be ridiculously far away. That can't be. They can't be that far away. And so he reasoned it had to be that Earth is stationary. And Aristarchus decided, well, no, the reason why the stars... You don't see any stellar parallax. Is they are ridiculously far away, mm-hmm. too far away for our instrumentation, if you could call it. I'll use air quotes. What they had were basically sticks, and they could measure mm-hmm. little. They had little protractors and could measure angles that way. Put a stick in the ground, measure the size of a shadow. That was their instrumentation, and we thought our technology just isn't good enough to see stellar parallax. And the stars could be shifting. We can't see it because they're really, really, really far away. And he went beyond that. He said, if they are that far away, then they must be suns. And the sun must be a star. And if the stars are suns, they must have planets going around them. And there must be beings living on those planets. And this was around 2,300 years ago.
0: Yeah, it's incredible. It's-
1: and how did he figure it out? The moon had a, played a big part in how Aristarchus figured out the size of the sun. By the way, he didn't get it right. Right. He was way off. He was way off by a... Do you want to describe the mechanism? Magnitude. Hmm?
0: Do you mind describing the mechanism that he, yeah, sure. he used? Sure. There were a couple of steps.
1: First of all, dealing with the moon, he realized that by this time the Greeks understood the causes of a lunar eclipse and the cause of a solar eclipse that started sometime maybe around the time of Anaxagoras or a little bit beyond that. Anaxagoras was the Greek who figured out that um, a solar eclipse is caused by the, the moon um, blocking the sun and that a lunar eclipse is caused by the moon getting in Earth's shadow. And to figure that out, he had to figure out that the sun, the sun's light, bouncing off the moon is what lit up the moon, that the moon didn't make its own light. He got into a lot of trouble because he said that the moon and the sun were not gods, that they are mm-hmm. objects, that the sun is a hot rock, and that the moon is a, a rock that the earth flung into space and shines by reflected sunlight. And that was in the golden age of Athens. He was a friend of Pericles. So how did Anaxagoras get into trouble at the height of a uh, Athenian uh, democracy? You would think they should be progressive. Why would they get? Why would they be angry at somebody for uh, saying that the sun and the moon are not gods? It was impiety legislation that they had on the books. Mm-hmm. What happens is that his friend Pericles, the great statesman, had gotten into a lot of trouble, making a few mistakes and decisions that ultimately would lead. Athens into a war, the Peloponnesian Wars against Sparta, and so Pericles had political enemies, and but he they couldn't really go after Pericles himself. He still had en- he held enough sway that they couldn't take him down. So they went after his friends, and including Anaxagoras, who had—he's the guy who brought philosophy to Athens. Uh-huh. There was yeah. no Athenian philosophy before that. He was Ionian. He came from Clazomenae. Uh, Ionio is where philosophy and really natural philosophy, kind of the the beginnings of science, Mm -hmm. started with Thales.
0: Yeah, now I should say that if you want to describe the sun as a hot rock and you want to describe the moon as a rock flung off from the earth um, reflecting sunlight, honestly, if you're talking to a four-year-old, that's not that bad of a description and not Mm -hmm. very far from the truth. You know if we're not, if- far,
1: not far and you know what what's really fascinating is not so much Anaxagoras talking about how the the moon shines by reflected sunlight but in terms of the origin of the moon that it was a yes, rock it's incredible. Flung out from, from earth mm-hmm. because if you look at the the beginnings of scientific discussion about the origins of the moon which starts in the late 19th century one of the leading hypotheses which was proposed by George Darwin, physicist, son of Charles Darwin, was that the moon started from, it was a chunk of Earth Mm -hmm. that was flung from what then became the Pacific Basin. And he thought that Earth had been rotating way faster than it was rotating then, so fast that it flung out a, a chunk of itself that became the moon, And that that carved out the Pacific Basin. Of course, in George Darwin's time, there was no theory of continental drift. There was no plate tectonics. Right. So, you know, because otherwise that wouldn't make sense. Uh Carving out the Pacific Basin, the Earth, everything, the surface of Earth was different. Right. Uh, But because of uh, calculations that Darwin made related to the secular acceleration, which is the phenomenon of how the moon is moving further out into space, and drawing energy from drawing from Earth's rotation. That has and to what is the number? Of,
0: just so people know, is it four, 4 centimeters per year? Is that right? You know,
1: it's something like 3 to 4 centimeters per year, and that's been verified by laser studies mm-hmm. using instruments that astronauts from a few of the Apollo missions, I think it was 11, 14, and one other mission, placed special reflecting instruments that would reflect back a beam of light in the same direction uh, from which it came. And so you can shine a laser, it still works today. Mm -hmm. You can shine a laser on those instruments and you can take very precise measurements, not only of the the distance of the moon and how fast it's moving away, but also the continents moving. That's how accurate it is. It's been used for studies on continental drift
0: yeah it it it's incredible you know uh one thing that that i really enjoyed while reading your book is this it's an idea it's an old idea okay it's an old idea in the literature but it's a rather new idea i guess in the public sphere it's not talked about a lot at least i don't hear it talked about a lot when i do outreach um and it's something that i Didn't even really encounter until I recorded a recent episode with a a guest of mine, Bernie Taylor, when when we were doing a whole episode on the moon. And it's, it's in your, it's in your book. And it's that the earth's wobble. Okay. And the, the life here on earth depends on that wobble for certain things. But, but if we had no moon, that wobble would be so severe. And it would be so severe that it would cause large-scale ice ages to happen over the course of millions of years. And we, and we can talk a little bit about this, but I just want to bring it up to you that th- yeah. this is like a, a a relatively. Did you find a lot of support for this idea when you were uh, writing the book? Because this is something that you it know, doesn't get
1: that much attention,
0: right? But it's you important.
1: Just because we, I went off on a tangent. That's my fault. But you asked me about Aristarchus how he figured out that.
2: that oh that right. This, uh,
1: bigger, yes. and maybe I should just finish that up. because yes, Yeah, if you don't mind, yeah. Axigoris. So Aristarchus. But using Earth diameters and Moon diameters, he had a way to get the relative size of Earth and the Moon, and using a method where he took advantage of the quarter phase of the Moon, which when there's a quarter phase, the Moon looks like a half circle. And then at that point, you can draw a right triangle representing The Earth, the Moon, and the Sun, they form a right triangle. And then all he needed to do was measure the angle during a quarter phase um, to the Sun. And in real life, it's very, very close to 90 degrees. It's something like 89 degrees, 50-something minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, He measured 87 degrees, or what we would call 87 degrees. He had different measurements then which led him to miscalculate the distance to the sun, but it still told him that the sun was a lot further away than people thought. Uh, He thought it was about 19 uh, times the distance from Earth to the moon. So it's about 19 times as far away as the moon. And since the sun and the moon were uh, the same the disk, amazingly, is about the same size because of the distance to the moon and the distance to the sun, um... This told him that the sun must be about six times the size of Earth. So he thought it was ridiculous that the sun would be going around Earth. Uh Really, the sun's a lot bigger than that. So it's even more ridiculous. But for those days, that was pretty good, considering his instrumentation was basically protractors made of sticks.
0: Yeah, it's, it's funny because if I literally went outside right now, and, and, you know, you put, you put me on an island for a month and you said, all right, calculate the distance of the sun using the same method. And yeah. <laughs> even though, and even though I know like intuitively in my head, how it should work, I would struggle and I would definitely do worse than he did. You know, so yeah I,
1: I don't even get how he can know when it's exactly the quarter phase. Exactly. And there's so many yeah. things I could go wrong in that measurement. It's just, it's similar to Eratosthenes is, is another, another of the heroes. Uh He's he's the ancient Greek who figured out the circumference of Earth, uh-huh. and he had a, he also used sticks and stones, basically. Or right, as they said on one classic, original Star Trek episode, stone knives and bearskins. Uh huh. <laughs> there was a moment where Spock mentioned yeah, that. To, to right. Kirby. It got thrown back in the 20th century. Spock needed to build a computer, <laughs> and they had nothing but vacuum tubes. And- he said, "You expect me to build this using stone knives and bearskins? skins?"
0: Yeah, so, I guess that's what you got to do. Yeah,
1: yeah, well. and that's basically what Eratosthenes had when he when he measured the uh, basically what Eratosthenes did. He was a he was the the librarian in uh, Alexandria, the Great Library of Alexandria. And the reason he's in my Moon Book, first of all, there's a crater named for him on the moon, and there's a whole period of mm-hmm. uh, lunar history name for that crater, the Eratosthenian period of lunar history. So I decided to talk about Eratosthenes. And he he does come into the discussion of the moon, even not because of the crater, but because you had to know the absolute size of something to be able to convert those findings of Aristarchus into a real value. What Aristarchus found was the size of the sun compared with Earth. The distance to the moon and the distance of the sun compared with Earth radii or lunar radii or whatever you want to use. And mm-hmm. if you're gonna, then you want to know the absolute distance, you need to know the size of Earth. Eratosthenes is the first guy who figured that out, and he did that because he heard, or he read in a book. Because as the librarian of Alexandria, you get to read a lot of books, and they loved books in Alexandria. They were mm-hmm. they were so into books that the Alexandria police force. The main task was to search ships that were arriving in Alexandria from all over the world, not for drugs, not for money, but for books. And they would confiscate the books and have them copied and put the books into the library as papyri scrolls.
0: In that library,
2: it, it got right? hundreds of
1: thousands right? of scrolls. It was destroyed centuries later. Yes. But Eratosthenes was a librarian in, in its heyday. Mm-hmm. It was really doing well under some of the Ptolemy kings, under Ptolemy second II and third, and a little bit beyond that. And it had, it had another heyday a little bit later. It went through its ups and downs. Some of the greatest uh, ancient scientists you've heard of all worked at that library, did research at the library. Because the library, the way it worked was that the, um, the kingdom gave financial support to people doing research at the library. So they gave support to Aristarchus. Mm-hmm. They gave Euclid was at was at the library. Um, they gave support to all these people, and it was connected with a museum and a, even a medical school, the first medical school in history to use human cadavers. So it was. And you way, did
0: not it, want to go tough. to that medicals. You did not want to go. You know, get treated there. I'm just saying that right now. You know, you did uh, not. You, you did don't not want to get want...
1: treated at any ancient medical exactly. Yeah. Site. No. No. But uh, so. How do we get on this? Well, Eratosthenes was a chief librarian, and uh, he was reading a book that told him, Carl Sagan tells a story in the original Cosmos. is really good. If you're going to watch part of the original Cosmos, watch this. But he tells a story about it, and this is, this is what they think happened. He read about a place way up the Nile River in mm-hmm. Upper Egypt called Syene, modern-day Aswan. And he read that on a certain day, in in the early summer which was actually the summer solstice that there was a well and the sun would shine directly down into that well
2: mm-hmm.
1: and at the same time at noon on that day of the year uh, a stick or a pole in the ground that's standing upright would not cast a shadow yeah and then he realized that all he needed to do was use a little bit of uh geometry or the early you know early kind of trigonometry charge mm-hmm. and measure the length of shadows from sticks in the ground and then you can compare the lengths and you can get the angle of curvature between the city of Alexandria where he was located and the city of Syene, all the way up the Nile River.
0: And wasn't so this calculated you
1: had what? a curvature. Yeah. It came out to in uh, our in our measurements about seven degrees. Uh-huh. So about a fiftieth of the of a circle of a of the circumference of Earth. So then all you needed to do was find the distance to Syene and then multiply that by, by fifty. And so he needed the distance. And there are different stories about how he found out the distance.
0: I was gonna bring to one Syene. of them up, yeah.
1: Yeah. Which one?
0: I, I remember hearing that that they literally counted the distance by by footsteps, by actual yeah. It might walking. Have been
1: true. Yeah, that he said he hired a guy to, to like pace it out. Yeah. There were caravans going though? So they um they they could have known. Oh, it takes a caravan this amount of time by camel mm-hmm. to get this this distance. And there was also at the time Archimedes had a a kind of odometer that he had invented, and they may have used something like that, or it may have been a combination of all these things.
0: Either way, it was an imprecise measurement,
2: right?
1: Yeah, he found out it was something what they called about um, uh, 5,000 stadia. Now, a a stadion was the the distance across uh, an Olympic sports stadium. Mm -hmm. And so then it came out that the circumference of Earth, was something like two hundred fifty-two thousand stadia, but the yeah. catch is there were different there were different kinds of stadia. Naturally. So if you use the right one, then his calculation comes out to almost precisely to what the actual circumference of Earth is. If you use the wrong one, then he he overestimated the circumference. Yeah, doesn't but for it, those days it was pretty good.
0: Studying Greek history, I took a I took an ancient history course when I was an undergrad and studying greek history to me just makes me feel so stupid like that's what it does for me i don't know if you got that while you were writing this book but you're like damn these people just know what the hell they're doing like i am just dumb you know and s- sometimes i, got I just the have the sensation
1: live with that. that you had about well if i were trapped on a desert island i couldn't do this yeah what he did with with nothing no technology these people were geniuses we think, you know, people, when they talk about ancient science, ancient philosophy, and you think, oh, okay, Empedocles, all right, Mm -hmm. Empedocles, he is the philosopher who came up with the the idea of four elements of fire, earth, water, and air, uh, which was taking it a step up from what different Ionians were saying, where it was one element. So Thales the Ionian, said everything comes from water. Uh, Right. Heraclitus it's all from fire. Empedocles put this together, and, oh, we got these four elements, and people are always knocking Empedocles, oh, come on, how ridiculous. What do you mean earth, air, fire, water? But what would you have thought if you were in those times? Considering what they had before, it was a pretty good step. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought,
0: shit. I would have been at the bar. I would have been, you know, getting – you know, procedures done at the library. I'd be dead in two decades. Yeah, I wouldn't have lived to 18, I don't think. But I see your point. And you know what's really interesting? I read a book called Getting Science Wrong. It's a pretty good book. And they talk about the ancient philosophers and the way that they do characterize, you know, uh, who's the who's the particular philosopher who says, everything is water?
1: That's Thales.
0: Okay, th- there's also, a really...
1: By the way, there's a yeah. story I should tell about him because he was, he was amazing.
0: Go
2: ahead.
1: Uh, what, okay. Well, so he stopped a war. If it, he should get a Nobel Prize for doing that. So the ancient Babylonians had figured out how you could how you can know when there's going to be a solar eclipse and when there's going to be a lunar eclipse uh-huh. because they were they were data recorders. Right. They didn't have these models and oh, the universe must be this or that. But what the Babylonians did. And was and the Sumerians before that was they they took all of their data and they recorded those data in cuneiform on tablets going back for centuries. And by the time you get to the eighth century BCE, there is a there is a uh, a calling a king. He might have been more like a a vassal to the Assyrian uh, ruler at the time because Assyria dominated everything. But in Babylon it was a king or governor named Nabonassar, And Mm -hmm. he rounded up astronomers to look through data that went back for centuries and had been recorded on tablets and find trends. Mm -hmm. And this led to a couple of things. This led to, this was the first data mining. This led to... Literal mining too. Yeah. It led to the 19-year lunisolar calendar Mm -hmm. that has been preserved today in the form of the Jewish calendar where you have 235 lunar months repeat every 19 years it was nabonassar's astronomers who figured that out and in athens they called it the metonic cycle for the astronomer mm-hmm. meton and they also figured out <laughs> that you could you could predict eclipses and that every every uh, 18 years and 11 days and eight hours, something like that, a solar eclipse would repeat itself. Mm -hmm. And because that comes out to a third of a day, so every three cycles, that repeats in roughly the same spot on Earth. Now they didn't know why that happened. We have no evidence to say they knew that was because the moon blocked the sun. But the philosopher Thales, a couple of centuries later, during during the uh, early sixth century B.C.E., he figured out there was going to be a solar eclipse, and he was from the Ionian city of Miletus. And the Ionians were these Greeks that came out of the Dark Ages first, out of the Greek Dark Ages, and they were they were into business and trading and. Thales had once predicted an olive harvest and then bought up all the olive presses and got rich that way. Now, he had a way to predict a solar eclipse, probably because he had either read some Babylonian works or maybe he'd even traveled to Babylon. Mm-hmm. It's really certain what happened. But he understood these cycles. We call them Saros cycles today. <clears throat> and he was able, he knew there was going to be an eclipse. And at the time, Ionia was under heavy sway of the Lydian Empire and it wasn't good for the Ionians but the Lydians were at war against the Medians Mm -hmm. and Thales realized that if he could get the war to stop it would be a lot better for business and so he went up to the the commanders of the uh um of the uh both armies Mm -hmm. and he's like you know the gods are really really pissed off that you guys are fighting in fact they're so pissed off that they want you to stop the war right now uh and to prove it they're going to darken the, s- the sun they're going to turn day into night
2: mm-hmm.
1: um on tuesday at three o'clock or whenever it is right and then the lydian commanders are in the media commanders are, you know like what what are you talking the god's Dark and like, get the fuck out of here. You know, mm-hmm. you know, we thought he was nuts. Yeah. So they didn't believe him, but then it actually happened, uh-huh. and they thought this guy's this guy knows what he's talking about. And they the war came to an end, and then Ailis was able to negotiate really good terms for the uh, for the for the Ionians, especially his city of Militus, and then he was a hero. And then people were flocking to Miletus to study philosophy under him. And this got Ionian philosophy going. It got the Ionian awakening.
0: Mm-hmm. I would literally,
1: it was literally utilize... the seed of, of, of human science at that point. And it happened because of the moon.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, it's an incredible story. Now, I want to say that maybe I'm a piece of shit. But I feel like if I was alive then, I would have literally used that knowledge to take over the world. I'd, <laughs> I would have. I'd have been like, listen, guys. I, I'm in contact with the gods. I know what they're going to do up there. And I would just, ru- I would take it all over. I would rule the whole place. But, um, I think that, that we should to move on. I want to mention this, this topic and we'll talk a little bit about it. Um, it's the, the earth's wobble, which I brought up earlier.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: This, so I'll quickly explain it. And then I want to talk about some of the astrobiological consequences. Um, and obviously you'll have maybe a lot to say about that. So, sure. uh, we are very lucky here on the earth we're lucky because the moon helps us greatly it helps stabilize the orbit or the rather the wobble see the earth wobbles on an on an axis the axis is about 23 degrees okay and give or take you know one degree every couple thousand years it might be 22 degrees it might be 24 degrees and it 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 processes back and forth on its axis very slowly, and that's the the ty- those small scale changes lead to to large scale effects like ice ages. Oh, by the
1: way, the procession also discovered by an ancient Greek. Hipparchus. Oh, really? Yeah.
0: Those damn people.
1: So, yeah, it, it just blows your mind, doesn't yeah. it?
0: Yeah. So, so the, these this procession though is what leads to some large scale changes in climate that we see happening on orders of thousands of years. Now,
1: yes, the reason we're and very by lucky. The way, a caveat there, yeah. just to avoid. I, we don't want the climate science deniers using this to say that, oh, Naturally, climate science yeah. is, is wrong. okay? Oh, I'm, sure this is totally yes. I'm sure they're already saying it. a different time
0: scale. Yes. I'm sure they're saying that right now. Based on what we put into the atmosphere. Yes, of course. Yes. But, now, so that's not the cause of climate change. This is the cause of large scale changes like ice ages, yeah. not. Not em- not changes due to emissions over the past 100 years. Yes, great point, actually, because people would clip me saying that and then, like, use me in promotional videos. That's,
1: that's what they do all the time. The the climate, especially on the right-wing climate deniers, they're always yeah. like, oh, but astronomers tell us that they're way bigger shifts because of uh, changes in sun intensity and changes in uh, Earth's orbit and changes in Earth's wobble, so...
0: Yeah, it is a real big set problem. Set
1: that up so they can't do it.
0: Exactly. Um, some scientists, though, a long time ago, um, they they started to ask the question: What if we didn't have a moon? What would yeah. the wobble be like if we didn't have a moon? And that question is sort of tough to answer. But luckily, we have an analog. We have Mars. Mars is essentially at the same tilt. It's about twenty three degrees, but it has no appreciable moon. It has two moons: it has Phobos and Deimos. But they don't mean anything. They're tiny. They they. They are essentially like not there, but Mars over the course of millions of years, the wobble goes between 10 degrees all the way up to 40 degrees. And this (laughs) causes huge scale changes that last not thousands of years, but millions of years where you literally have ice coming down near what was once the equator. And it stays there for millions of years. It is not a habitable place. And that's just one of the reasons that it's not a habitable place. So the moon acts to stabilize our planet. Now, from an astrobiological perspective, how important do you think that was for the emergence of life here?
1: Well, of course we we have no we have no frame of reference. We won't really know that until exactly. we really find life on other uh, in other star systems and mm-hmm. and min, and um, we find. Uh, extra solar earths and we can look at things like that but it's thought just because of the physics that and how extreme the climate changes would be that it would be pretty difficult for life uh, on, in terms of uh, very complex organisms
2: mm-hmm. like
1: the kind of organisms that would evolve nervous systems brains, what became humanity ultimately, that they would have enough time uh, for intelligence and certainly technology to emerge before going extinct. I don't think it, life would go away. Life is extremely tenacious.
0: Yes, it is. <clears throat> this is actually one of my problems. I th- not a, It's not a problem. Maybe it's not a problem. But this is one of my gripes, I think, with a lot of <clears throat> exoplanet research. Is that they oftentimes don't take into account how tenacious life could be. You know, for example, yeah. look at Europa, right? Europa's interesting because it's in a place where you would, you certainly wouldn't consider it habitable at first glance, right? It's nowhere near its parent star. It's, it's pretty close to Jupiter, which is a gas giant. And, and typically when we look at exoplanets, we, we, we see a gas giant, we're like, get that thing out of here. But, you know, you have a situation in Europa where you could literally have liquid water. Underneath this uh, ice layer on the surface. And in that liquid water, it's probably pretty warm because the inside of the planet or the inside of the the moon is generating tidal heating uh, due to being so close to Jupiter. And so you have a warm ocean potentially way far out in the solar system. And what's to say that there's not some microbial life flourishing there right now? Oh, yeah. Or even more. Also,
1: there's an energy source. There's an energy source. There have been several papers on this uh, because of. Because of the radiation hitting the ice. Uh And there's a way to convert that into energy that life could use. So there's a pretty strong case that life is very likely in the European Ocean. And even more so on Enceladus, one of the moons of Saturn. Uh Uh, It's the same thing. And what's really interesting about Enceladus compared with Europa is there's probably a way for us to sample
2: uh, yes from it's the Enceladus it, it
1: just squirts out into space. Yes. You don't it, have to drill down and send a submarine into that.
0: It blows so much stuff out, and Saladus puffs so much stuff out with, with these ice geysers yeah. um, that it literally has composed a new ring of Saturn. Yeah. The F ring, yeah. I think it is. I think it's the F ring. It has composed essentially an entire ring of material just by shooting stuff out as it goes about its orbit. It's really cool. And so, you know, when when you talk about SETI, when you talk about exoplanetary research, I think that sometimes we get the low hanging fruit, which are the Goldilocks zone planets. But yeah. but life is likely a lot more tenacious than just to live on some warm planet in some nice place around a nice. Yeah, storm.
1: one thing. One thing is the astrobiological perspective that we have, uh, based on all we know about biology and and where it exists on Earth, is it, it's microbes are tenacious. Even some organisms that are not microbial, like tardigrades, what like mm-hmm. commonly call water bears. These are tiny little invertebrates. They can live in space, just out in open space. They can tolerate the desiccation, mm-hmm. uh, the radiation, and the, um, the, the zero pressure, and they won't die.
0: And I literally can't even live in upstate New York. Those things, <laughs> they just, they belong here, and I don't think I do sometimes, you yeah. know? Yeah, um, they're the real kings of this planet. They're going to be here well, long after we nuke tardigrades ourselves.
1: Tardigrades can live in Rochester.
0: Yes, of course. Like, well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. They might get shot or stabbed, um, oh. but nevertheless, you know, they could deal with the cold. So, yeah, another so food.
1: I mean, the moon. The moon gave us this stability of the wobble, and it it it's likely that you wouldn't have intelligent life without it, or certainly not our kind of intelligent life. mm-hmm but we don't know because we have nothing to compare it with.
0: Right now, can I can I take an extra ten minutes of your time? Because there's another take,
1: yeah, you can take as much as you need.
0: Okay. There's a really uh, another fascinating thing that stuck out to me that I didn't know. This is like my favorite fun fact now for the next two weeks. Uh, it's a it's a it's a quote, and it's in regards to to the early trips to the moon. Um, and this quote is. Early mission planners actually discussed an idea of NASA sending an astronaut on a one-way lunar mission. Before the Soviets had a chance to get there first, supply ships would then maintain the astronaut until a better rocket could be sent to bring him home. I did not know that.
1: There was such a pressure to beat the Soviets to the moon. This this is the, the story of the space race going to the moon. Don't get me wrong, there is a lot of good science that came out of Project Apollo. Most of what we know about the moon, all the details, is because we sent astronauts to the moon and we had 12 people down on the surface who were highly trained in Mm -hmm. field geology. I mean, every astronaut, with the exception of Harrison Schmidt, uh, the lunar module pilot of Apollo 17, had a PhD in geology he was primarily a geologist going to the moon. But the other guys who went there, because of all the training that they did, um, and the training built up as you get from the early missions of uh, Armstrong and Aldrin to the J missions, which are the Apollo 15, 16, and 17, where they spent about three days on the lunar surface, heavy in geology work. Those guys had somewhere in around a 1,000 hours of, geology training, which was the equivalent of having a master's degree in uh, geology. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And these were all test pilots who then got that kind of training.
0: So, I'm really interested in... Gene Cernan,
1: who went down to the commander of Apollo 17, who went down to the moon with Harrison Schmidt, he, he knew a good amount of geology himself because of all the training he got in the astronaut program, so he could assist... Schmidt pretty well in that exploration, and Apollo seventeen was one of the most science intensive and uh, Apollo missions, and it it returned a really good uh, science. Do you know as why? To, as to all the other missions,
0: do you know why that that idea got axed? The idea to send someone there temporarily and then pick them up later.
1: Well, they they figured out there were a bunch of reasons. They figured out that they could do it. get back on the same mission because of they they had um a program to for a heavy lift vehicle Uh and the story of that program was they had they had um rocket specialists most of the people on the team were, were from nazi germany that they the osi grabbed out of germany at the end of the war during a program that was initially called um, Operation Overcast, later changed to Operation um, Operation Paperclip, uh-huh. and President Truman signed the order because they were worried that the Soviet Union was going to gobble up all the German scientists and engineers and other specialists, not just in rocket technology, but in a whole range of technologies. They were looking for hundreds, thousands of German specialists.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And the order said that if there's any possibility that any of these guys is a war criminal, they're supposed to be sent off to Nuremberg and put on trial uh, for war crimes. Right. But unfortunately, what happened was they often looked the other way when there was any suspicion. So uh-huh. they took anyone who could be helpful. And it turned out that the, um, one of the one of the prime guys on the Saturn V program, Arthur Rudolph, who was – who was project leader for a while during the 60s of Saturn V program, he was a war criminal. There, During the, when the V2 program, which is what led to all this, had a move from Penemunde because the uh, the British had bombed it. That's where they were launching V2 originally, where they were building V2, designing it. They moved inland to the Middleverk, uh, which was a mountain, and they carved out tunnels and made a factory out of that and they were using slaves from the Dora concentration camp system Mm -hmm. to build the rockets. More slaves died building the V-2 than people died on the ground getting bombed by the V-2. And something like 9,000 people died from V-2 bombings in London and Antwerp, and something like 20,000 or more slaves died in those tunnels in Middleburg building the V-2. And it turned out that Arthur Rudolph it was his idea to use slaves. Hmm. There were a lot of people who were sort of in between we don't know what their state of conscience was. The main one being the most famous German rocket engineer Werner von Braun. Right. And this how team does that
2: guy
1: von Braun It's the reason we were able to get a Saturn V and because we were able to get a Saturn V First, they thought they could build something even bigger than the Saturn V. They wanted to build build something called a Nova rocket, which would have Mm -hmm. brought like a 40-ton craft to the surface, everything in one shot. The same ship would have landed on the surface and would have come back to Earth. Uh, But it turned out that would have taken until the 1970s, and they thought that the Russians would would beat them and they didn't want to do that. Mm -hmm. And then they started moving toward the Saturn V idea with von Braun in charge of that.
0: How does von Braun... And Operation Paper Club get involved in every conspiracy theory out there. That man <laughs> makes more saved. appearances.
2: Yeah.
0: He's in every every one I've ever heard. Can you yeah. also explain real quick, because you you definitely know better than I do? I've been asked the question before, how can we get through the Van Allen radiation belts? Okay? And because I'm not really a you know, an expert or because I don't really even study human spaceflight. I never really have an answer for that question. How can we get through it? Well, we go through it. That's normally my answer. Uh, but but you yeah. obviously will have a much better answer. Can you answer that question? Yeah, from- it's it's really good
1: navigation and and uh, flight planning. So this is something you hear from the moon conspiracists. This yes. is one of those they're talking points and it's exactly. kind of ridiculous that they you know they have A, B, and C that they say they run through their script. And one of the things they said, no, it's impossible that they sent people to the moon because they would have died going through the Van Allen belts. Well, no, because there are, well, today we know there are actually the three belts
2: mm-hmm. in
1: those days. And you know about the third, the third, when there's high solar particle events, activities, then a third belt lights up. Uh, but you got permanently, you got these two belts and you got the inner belt and the outer belt. And they have certain shapes because the reason you have those belts is because of the geomagnetosphere.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You have, a, you have a, a liquid outer core. And because you got, you got metals moving around through the core, it is, it's thought that there's a dynamo effect and that generates a magnetic field. And then charged particles that are coming in, either protons and HZ particles... And anything else that's charged gets trapped and it forms certain shapes. Mm -hmm. And the shape of the outer belt changes depending on solar activity. And the shape of the inner belt is fairly constant. And you get different, you know, there's areas where it's thinner or thicker uh, based on your altitude, based on your latitude. And also when astronauts go to the moon, They don't go at a constant velocity. They accelerate from low Earth orbit, and they go really fast at first, and then they slow down. And you could take advantage of that. The way they went to the moon with um, the Saturn V, which is very different from how you see, say, uh, groups now that are sending little probes to the moon. Mm -hmm. uh, It was just uh, an Israeli organization that almost landed on the moon. Took yep. seven weeks to get there. They died. The uh, Indian Space Research uh, Organization is getting ready. They're also mm-hmm. going to take a, the scenic route because they don't yes. have a Saturn V. Right. Maybe doesn't matter so much when you don't have people on it. Mm-hmm. But with the Saturn V, they can get there in about three days. <clears throat> and the way that worked was they did the they had these huge boosters getting into low Earth orbit, and the final stage to get into low Earth orbit involved the upper stage that was called the S four B stage, the third uh-huh. stage of Saturn V had a single J two engine that would ignite to make to give the finishing the last bit of delta V that they needed to get just into low Earth orbit. And they would make sure everything would check out, that they were ready to go to the moon. Uh-huh. And if all the systems checked out, then um, the then mission control in Houston Would give they would say your go for TLI which meant trans lunar insertion trans lunar injection insertion let's just say go for TLI okay okay you say you go for TLI so they would head for the moon and they they would ignite that that upper stage again that Uh J2 engine could be ignited a second time could be throttled back up and that would give them a huge acceleration, so they go really fast, and that would and they they would aim their trajectory to go through just a little corner of the inner belt,
2: uh-huh.
1: and they get through it really fast, and they get through just a little section of the outer belt, so they minimize the exposure to to trapped radiation.
0: Do you know how so, long they would spend in each belt? Not that off the top of not your head. That
1: in the inner belt, maybe a little longer in the outer belt, and they went through. They navigated so that they would get through the areas where there was a, where it was the least lethal, mm-hmm. the lowest concentration of uh, of these particles. So it was easily survivable. And yes, there was uh, there was an increased radiation risk. And then when they got outside the belts, there was also an increased radiation risk because now you're outside the, the magnetosphere.
2: Right. You don't
1: have any protection from if there's a solar particle event, which there wasn't during any of these missions, but it would have been, could have been disastrous if, if there were, if they were on the lunar surface. Um, but you also have what's called the galactic cosmic radiation, which uh-huh. is not as intense, but it's always there. Right. And that's one of the challenges to a Mars mission because they'll be out in the interplanetary radiation environment uh, for a very long time to the point where that developed radiation measures, countermeasures to mitigate effects, which could involve better shielding, could involve uh, radiation cocktails and mixtures of radio protective agents that you could you can inject or you could drink. Uh, for protection of mm-hmm. your, your cells.
0: Now, one thing I noticed when reading your your book, and uh, it's indicative of, of historical timelines, is that you have a bunch of information from from you know the theoretical beginning all the way up through Greek history, which you, we talked about, all the way up through the 1900s, all the way up through the Apollo program, and then all of a sudden. The timeline begins to get very spotty, and the reason it becomes to get it, it gets very spotty is because we stopped going to the moon. You know, we we Nixon nixed. Yeah. I don't know. What, does yes. that word come from Nixon? Nixed? I don't know. That's interesting. I don't know. He does. But he nixed he nixed the Apollo program. He 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 said, "Get the fuck out of here. We're not we're not going to the moon anymore." And and there's a lot of you know speculation on why he did that. He, he might have hated
1: the Kennedys.
0: Yes, it exactly. Was-
1: The moon program after Kennedy was assassinated, after JFK was assassinated, uh, the the quest to go to the moon with people it became like a memorial Mm -hmm. to the fallen president. Yeah. Uh, Later, adding on to that was when astronauts of uh, what became to be called Apollo One were killed in 1967. That added together with this memorial for JFK and it was just such a driver even uh, LBJ didn't exactly get along great with JFK but he had this this mission that he, he wanted to to do that for for his the his former president that he had served
0: did so, you read much Nixon about had
1: none of that Nixon just even after JFK was gone he's still gonna yeah, yeah
0: that's huh did you read much about what the the public reaction to that was when you when you nixed that entire program because it was you know i mean i obviously wasn't alive at the time i'm only 23 i don't even remember how old i am i think i'm 23 uh but you know i i, I don't have a sense for how the public would have reacted but i imagine through reading that you, you know you're able to get a sense for it that that was this a something that people agreed with were people vilifying nixon for it
1: you know, Brandon, it, it, we are in um, – we have a different perspective as space people. I'm an astrobiologist. You're an astrophysicist. Um, we think about space. We want people back on the moon. We want people on Mars. We want instruments out and further away. We want to lander on Europa. We want to get samples from this. I'd like some Mars samples.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But the general public – uh, probably by that time, I based on what I've read, they weren't so into it. Once you had human footprints on the moon, public has a very low short attention yeah. span. Right. And you get a sense of this from the movie Apollo 13. I think that's maybe the best um, like Apollo vintage Apollo space history movie. It's, it's, it's great. It's such an old movie already. I think it's mm-hmm. from 1995. Uh, Ron Howard did an amazing job with that. And Tom Hanks playing the Apollo 13 commander, uh, Jim Lovell,
2: mm-hmm.
1: who is still with us. He was like 91 or something like that. Um, you get a sense of it in his book and in the movie that by the time you, know, you got up to like 1970, the public was just just had it I mean first of all the, the, the stage of history it was things were happening outside of the space program. The Vietnam War. Right. Vietnam War was horrible. It was this is what was on the news every morning, every evening. There were a lot of assassinations. So really you get this in from the late nineteen sixties. Uh, in nineteen sixty eight when Apollo eight went to the moon, which also Involved Jim Lovell because he was the command module pilot on that mission. Uh, that was the end of a horrible year in, in world history and especially U.S. history.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Major, um, I, I guess, a uh, upheaval or um, e- escalation of fighting in Vietnam. Um, assassinations: Martin mm-hmm. Luther King assassination in April. Robert Kennedy. JFK's brother assassinated in June. Uh, the public was depressed, mm-hmm. and then these three guys went to the moon at the end of 1968, and it kind of it, it gave people like a way to end the end the year on a happy note. Right. Uh, that was considered to be more dangerous than Apollo 11 because there were way more unknowns. And when they got back safe, they uh, the parties. I heard that. NASA Road 1 in Houston was closed for about three days because everybody was just partying. Once they were able to pull off Apollo 8, they knew that they could pull off a landing because they had pretty much all the unknowns solved. They just had to do a couple of practice Mm -hmm. rehearsals before that, but they knew that they
0: could do it. Yeah, Um, now I, I have some insiders at Johnson Space Center now. So I'll get to hear about those stories in the future if they happen.
1: Yeah, there, there's still some people there. Some of them recently retired. Some are still there who might remember some of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so, but by the time you get it to 1970, after you've, you've had a couple of successful missions to the moon, public thought it was routine, and they they portray this pretty well in the Apollo 13 movie that when Lovell and his crew are on his way to, on their way to the moon in April. The only thing that really excites the public and even news reporters is that it's the number 13. Isn't that Uh bad luck? Oh, no. He asked, how could you send Apollo 13? And, And NASA just thought this was ridiculous. In fact, the flight director, Gene Kranz, on purpose, he scheduled the launch time for... 1313 13
2: hours.
1: Uh, <laughs> plus, they would be approaching the moon on April 13th. He just wanted to rub this in the face of everybody. And uh, They used to do stuff like this. They made fun of astrology all the time. They, uh, during um, uh, space missions, they would come up with these, uh, oh, here's your horoscope for the day, uh, crew of Apollo 7 or Apollo 9, whatever it was.
2: Yeah.
1: Be like, no. okay... Jack, you know you're gonna clean the toilet. Uh, John, you're gonna dump the urine, or whatever. And they were just totally the public didn't like realize it, but they were they were poking fun at astrology. See, all the now time. we're
0: so sensitive that you can't even call an astrologer dumb anymore, right? So they wouldn't even be able to do that. they have you know it's uh, inclusive. You got to be inclusive.
1: And you know what 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 amazes you even more when you realize that people still actually take astrology seriously today I
2: know.
1: is that there were already people by the middle ages. I've mentioned a couple of them in my book who understood that astrology was bunk. Some of those dudes in the Arabic world, mm-hmm. uh, like from you know, all, all about a thousand years ago, 800 years ago, they were employed officially as astrologers working for whatever emperor Mm-hmm. Was, uh, was in charge of that area of the world. So there was this polymath named al who lived in the Central Asia area. Yeah. He, he was a genius. Just like Eratosthenes, he calculated the circumference of the earth using a different method from Eratosthenes, involving a mountain, and getting the angle from here to there on the mountain. And he also came up with the circumference of earth pretty accurately to the point where he realized well, there must be a continent in between Europe and Asia. To, and it's been said that, in a way, he kind of discovered America without ever leaving the place where he was.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: he was one of the first people to doubt Aristotle. Uh, he was really skeptical about Aristotle. And apparently he was also skeptical about astrology. In fact, he thought it was ridiculous. Smart his his guy. paycheck was coming for giving battle horoscopes because that, that was what he had to do to, uh-huh. to stay in business. And a couple of centuries later, there was another astronomer, Al-Tusi in Syria, who you could tell by what both these guys are writing, that they didn't think astrology was real, but that they had to do it. And they would then get the money. They'd use it to build observatories, like Al-Tusi built the Marga Observatory to do his serious astronomy work, where he was really... Taking very precise measurements of stars and planets, way better than anyone had done to that point, and then he did that for the um, the Hulagu Huluga Khan,
2: mm-hmm. which
1: was the Mongol ruler that had, that had reached that point of the world by that time, gave let, supporting his Mariga observatory, and then in the morning the Khan would say, well, so how did your uh, how did your work go last night when you were looking at the stars? you know, you got my battle horoscope ready.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so he'd say like, "Well, yeah, yeah, sure. Have your battle today. That's
0: fine. Right. And,
1: you know, yeah. He, he's, oh, man. The rulers didn't understand the. Gotta make some shit up.
0: Going on. But yeah, <laughs> I, I sometimes I consider just being a con artist and just like opening up a psychic <laughs> shop or something for the same yeah. reason. Yeah. Um, Cause yeah. you know, if they're, so if they're the willing to pay, t- I guess I'm willing to lie. Yeah.
1: In an Apollo 13, so this is what was on the headlines, uh, and then there was another tiny little headline that they had to replace uh, the command module pilot, uh, was supposed to be Ken Mattingly, but in those days, in the early Apollo missions, they didn't do quarantine of the crew prior to the launch. They did quarantine after Mission because they didn't know whether or not there were lunar life forms. Mm. Just in case to play it absolutely yep. perfectly safe, they wanted to quarantine the crew for a few weeks when they got back, which they did after Apollo eleven, after Apollo twelve, and then after Apollo 14. For
0: a few weeks they did after Apollo
1: 13, because it never got to the surface of the moon. Right. Now, uh, but before Apollo thirteen there was no quarantine, and they found out that one member of the astronaut corps, Charlie mm-hmm. Duke, who ended up going to the moon on Apollo 16 as the lunar module pilot, that he uh, developed uh, rubella, uh, which is one of the three uh, the three viruses. Yeah.
0: Was he they, an anti-vaxxer? Might have been.
1: He was not an anti-vaxxer, as far as I know, and it's just that during his childhood there was they yeah. didn't have the benefit that we Right,
2: have. exactly.
1: An yeah. MMR vaccine. Uh-huh. That's the vaccine for measles, mumps, rubella. Yep. And so he he caught it. In those days, it wasn't routinely given to adults, even if they didn't have it. It was just coming out uh, mm-hmm. around then or maybe a little bit after then. I don't remember exactly when, when that vaccine came out, but in, in combination with the vaccine for measles and mumps. And since Charlie Duke had rubella, also sometimes called german measles or three day measles he could have come in contact with any other astronaut and one of the astronauts on the apollo 13 mission uh, ken mattingly had never had rubella as a kid
2: hmm.
1: and it would have been horrible if he had come yeah. up, come down with rubella uh, it would have he would have gotten sick pretty much when his two crew members were going down to the surface of the moon and he had to be docking with them he wouldn't have been able to Handle it, it would have been a disaster, and so they swapped him out of the crew and they put in uh, Swigert in his place. Mm. They, they go through this pretty well in the movie Apollo 13, although they said measles and not rubella I guess just they didn't want to make it too complicated. Uh, so uh, that was pretty much the new. Nobody was interested in where they were going. This was going to be a huge deal because. They were headed to the Fra Mauro region of the moon. It was going to be the first human mission to land in a highland region of the moon. And that was really important scientifically. The first two human landing missions had come down in mare areas,
2: low areas mm-hmm.
1: where they would pick up pieces of lunar basalt. The mare, uh, the surfaces, the reason why they look dark is because of the type of rock that covers them it's basalt that came out as magma that was underneath the moon when impacts had to first there were impacts that carved those lowland areas and then there were other impacts that cracked all the way through releasing magma which came out as as basaltic lava covering those surfaces and its reflectivity is lower uh Mm -hmm. because the iron content in there and that was Getting samples of those Mara areas was really helpful, but now they wanted samples of the, of the Highland region. Fra Mara was a really important region because it was the impact that was thought to have carved the Imbrian Basin. It was expected that that ca- caused catapulted pieces from the, what was in there before the Imbrian Basin to build up into the Fra Mara Highland region. And uh, that, they ended up getting samples of that in the next mission, Apollo 14. But the astronauts on 13 were really excited for that. And even in the movie, uh, Tom Hanks' character, Jim Lovell, actually says how excited he is about wanting to go to Far be part of the science. Public probably was not paying attention. No, to they us. didn't care. Oh, yeah. Another three guys another three guys to the moon, big deal. It's routine. Yes. And why was it not routine? It's not meant to send people into
0: space. And now we're finding out...
1: From the shuttle missions.
0: Yeah. And now in in closing, I want to talk about one more thing and then we can let you get out of here. And it relates to this. Um, We're going back to the moon. The U.S. wants to do it by 2024. Um, I have some sources in the government that Mm -hmm. tell me there is a reason 2024 is chosen and it has everything to do... With Donald Trump's lasting legacy, if he does get reelected, um, China wants to go back to the moon in a similar time frame to put boots on the moon. Mm-hmm. We have SpaceX. We have Blue Origin, who is going to have made an announcement about the moon by the time this is released. Well, they're going to make an announcement. Whether or not it's about the moon is up in the air. It's going to be about the moon. It's likely going to be about their efforts to get back to the moon or to get to the moon for them the first time.
1: Well so it what? sounds like you're saying that they have some kind of intelligence uh, whispering into the ear of Donald Trump that if he's lucky enough to get reelected
0: oh one second uh, I one second I seem to have um, lost you here. Oh something broke with my recorder. Are you there? I'm here. I still can't hear you. What the heck? I'm um, here. Here. Um, um. I. So my recorder seems to have cr- crashed for some reason, but that's okay. The conversation is safe. But um. So you were saying that. That. So am I not getting
1: recorded now?
0: No. Yeah, you are. You are. The conversation's safe. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I was saying that it sounds like you're saying that that the there's some kind of intelligence suggesting that the chinese will get to the moon in 2024 or a little after and that they want to get americans back there before the chinese get there in order to protect trump's legacy if there's any legacy to protect
0: yes i'm wondering to what degree uh, that we could have a, a secret space race you know, happening
1: i thought i heard somewhere years and years back that that trump believed the moon conspiracy that he's a He's a moon truther, he might, or that he paid lip service to it. So, who is he for wanting? Maybe he wants to put a golf course on the moon,
0: yeah. First, yeah, exactly. I mean, that
1: would be some you could really hit that ball far,
0: yeah. That's a good move, actually.
1: Yeah, actually, I think think Alan Shepard hit a golf ball on the moon,
0: did he? Yes, I think you're right, Yeah.
1: yeah, yes. So, maybe he wants to follow up on that, but. You know, there's some little uh, um, lessons from history that we have to learn. They thought they had really good intelligence in the 1960s uh, regarding the Soviets trying to put people on the moon. The reason why Apollo 8 went to the moon in 1968 and why they didn't, uh, that was way out of what was supposed to happen in terms of progressions for getting to the moon. It wasn't even on the drawing board doing that kind of mission. Uh, they didn't have a lunar excursion module with them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so that was not a kind of mission that was supposed to uh, uh, to fly. Um, what that mission was supposed to do was supposed to be Apollo 9. And the mission that ended up being Apollo 9 was supposed to be Apollo 8. And what Frank Borman, who ended up going to the moon as Apollo 8, what he was supposed to do with his crew was fly to a much higher orbit around Earth. Mm-hmm. Um and with a lunar module, and they were supposed to get into an orbit that's high enough so that when you come back to Earth to do your reentry, you're going to be doing reentry under the same conditions that you would be doing it if you were coming all the way back from the moon. Right. I don't remember what the altitude was supposed to be, but that was supposed to be what was, they called an e-mission, and they ended up never doing an e-mission. And uh, what became Apollo 9? That was supposed to be a, a D mission,
2: uh-huh. which
1: is launched with a command module and a lunar module. And up to that point, all they did was a C mission, which was Apollo 7, which is low Earth orbit with just a command module and people in it. And A and B were unmanned missions. And then they had a different letter for every kind of mission. And I mentioned J missions earlier in the uh-huh. broadcast. It was, the most complex missions where you're on the surface for three days doing a lot of science on the surface. So, there was another letter indicating the first human landing, another one, uh, the other types of landings. So, um, how did I get onto this? Uh, oh, so there wasn't supposed to be this, what ended up being kind of a C prime mission, going into orbit around the moon with only a command module. It was very dangerous. What happened was the CIA had pictures of what looked like it was a huge moon rocket because the Soviets were working on a giant rocket Mm -hmm. uh, but they weren't really that close to being able to use it it was failing all the time They they were exploding and all that the Soviet Union ended up, they did send kind of cosmonauts around the moon but not human cosmonauts they sent tortoises and mealworms and different Kinds of non-human animals on zon missions
2: Mm -hmm.
1: which ended up uh they didn't end up very uh healthy
0: yeah imagine what you think if you're a turtle and these idiots are blasting you into space
1: yeah they get all the way to the moon and back and then they had like a valve failure and their cabin depressurized and they died oh boy i think it happened uh on zon 6 also so that was pretty much as far as the Soviet Union. So got you're
0: saying, be careful about intel.
1: intel. <laughs> yeah. So we don't know. Yeah. Or who knows? Maybe the Chinese will do it tomorrow, long before.
2: We,
0: yes. We but the know. point is, the point is, we're getting there, right? We're getting there. We're getting close. Someone is probably going to be at the moon by 2030. If I had to wager a bet, are you excited <laughs> about that prospect?
1: Oh yes, very, very. We really need to do this to be able to get our space legs and have a platform from which to operate to go deeper into the solar system. Um, I'm not convinced that we should go directly to, to Mars with humans
2: mm-hmm. yet.
1: I agree. Uh, I think we should go. Yeah. But it might be we haven't been on a, another celestial body with people for a really long time, especially going to the surface of Mars. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can go put a base on Phobos. Yeah. Uh, there's. Uh, I've heard that a lot of the engineering challenge with getting people to Mars is actually then going down through the atmosphere and getting to the surface because that's where you have the atmosphere is just too thin to be really helpful yeah. with anything much. it It's not very good at holding up parachutes. It, yeah, you can slow you a little bit. Mm -hmm. But it's thick enough to make problems like the dust getting in. Yes, I was gonna
0: say dust is the big one you know, you have these large-scale dust storms on Mars that Devastate technology, especially things like solar panels Moon dust is a problem, too. Yes
1: We have to learn to deal with that, but at least you don't have you don't have uh, air on the moon So you don't have it blowing all over the place, right? The problem is if you track that dust into any habitat, you're in trouble in fact we may have been just at the limit on those last three Apollo missions to how long we could keep astronauts on the moon. The dust was eating into the outer layers of spacesuits, and there's a concern about what will happen if astronauts breathe it in because it's, these particles are really sharp. They're tiny, and mm-hmm. what's that? what will that do to your lungs? Very bad things. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But I think well, we can really make an effort. We come up with engineering solutions to how to deal with
0: Dust. we'll wrap this up I got one question in closing Dr. David Wormflash if if Blue Origin came to you and said we, we want to put you on the first mission to the moon we want you to be one of the dudes the guys the <laughs> women the men the people are you going
1: oh yeah I'm, I'm there man that's I'm so there.
0: scary I'm scared I'm scared Blue Origin
1: well they're they're uh I mean I don't think they want to lose people but who knows
2: yeah I, I
1: I just the the one caveat I would say is, but let's let's develop the um, the crew vehicle you know in a smart way, yeah. Uh, not you know it has to be the uh, one one thing good about the way the NASA is doing it, even though NASA gets a lot of criticism that it takes a long time. Uh-huh. But the Orion spaceship, I mean, the there's good radiation protection. There's um, everything is solid they're just playing it really conservatively because yeah. they don't want to kill people um the uh spacex i've heard that the the dragon what'll be the next generation dragon capsule that they're pretty thin hole so the radiation protection may not be as good and they may need to look at that before they
0: yep. think seriously about and one people. just blew up in it's testing the, so
1: through the belts and into the uh, to the outside of the geomagnetosphere
0: yeah yeah Alright. Well, with that being said, thank you for being here, people. Thank you for being here, Dr. David Warnflesh. And we're, I, we're and done. Check
1: out my book.
0: Yes, of course. <laughs> and, and I'll, I'll have many links to that down below. So please buy it. It's on Kindle. It's at Barnes and Noble. It's on Amazon. It's everywhere. So we're out. We're done. Thank you. Thanks for being here, David. Um, so I'll, I'll make all the edits we talked about.